perfection. Refuge of the Incompetent, and, and I'm Gaul. And I'm Moses, Lizard Moses. I'm Ted. And uh, what's our show this week about? Can you guess? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you are, well, I don't know, maybe you just watched Flash Gordon, and you agree that that's one of the best lines in the film. It is also a camp movie, because that's our theme! Space camp. We have our special, our special cinema consultant, although I... D- don't think I didn't notice that when I wrote films are, it was corrected to cinema <laughs> consultant. Yeah, because you always ask what the term is, and I tell you, and then you forget it. So I corrected it. I do. It. I do. Oh, sorry, a cat just screamed in the background. Okay, it's our ahead. resident cinema cat. Um, Brendan, say hi. That's oh, cue. I'm sorry. I didn't know if I was going to give my own introduction. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah. Hey. Great to be here. You may remember Brendan from such episodes as... Zardoz and another one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was the, trying to think about which. Episode. It was the Soviet sci-fi episode. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Talk about failed seriousness. <laughs> Defining what camp is. It's about doing your thing. Camp is about extreme skepticism. Basically, everything is fake. First and foremost, I you know when I try to think about it, you know, is this actually camp? I always go back to John Waters' definition on his guest role on The Simpsons. The ludicrously tragic, the tragically ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful dynamic tension is is where camp resides. But uh, someone tried to kind of put the stake posts around where camp is and sort of formalize it. Yeah. And uh, if we if you did the reading, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all read the Susan Sontag, uh, you know, on camp. And I feel like a big part of the show is we'll watch a lot of movies that we'll say are so bad it's good, and maybe we're just fo- leaning in a little more heavily on that this this episode. But some of the things that list are so bad they're bad. Yeah, we read uh, Susan Sontag's notes on camp, which is much criticized, but still sort of the ground, not ground stone. What's that? Foundation stone? Yeah, sure. L- Lodestone? <laughs> Brimstone. <laughs> Foundation stone. Was the smooth like- ashler. <laughs> <laughs> Of camp studies, to the extent that's a thing. Mm. And then we also read Bruce LaBruce's Notes on Camp slash Anti-Camp, which is more recent, and Anne Pellegrini's Future Notes on Camp. Notes on Camp is from 64. Like, I copied and pasted a few of the ways she... ways she defines it. The essence of camp is in its love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. It's a sensibility that, among other things, converts the serious into the frivolous. A way of seeing the world, not in terms of beauty, but in terms of the degree of artifice, of stylization. The love of the exaggerated, the off of things being what they are not. The things we picked out to watch for this episode are, I think, primarily camp and sort of science fiction incidentally. Like, reading the ways she tries to define camp it did make me think that um there is something kind of camp to a lot of high sci-fi classic mid-20th century sci-fi it's sort of t- supposed to be this dream of the 
extending science and rationality infinitely into space. But you get these products, these things that are imagined, you know, spaceships as big as a planet, a civilization that uses the energy of an entire sun. Lots of, like, just big extravagant things that do not follow naturally from just, Mm -hmm. like, following science and reason. They are, like, aesthetic extravagances. They're just um, kind of straight nerdy ones. Sci-fi is almost like camp at a civilizational level. I think that is, I mean, certainly in the, in the you know, 50s and 60s, the written sci-fi. But then the movies, like, especially looking back on the movies now, just they take these big ideas and then it's just clearly a cardboard and latex facade that falls over. <laughs> so that's kind of why those movies are so much funnier now. But then the ones we watched for this episode are more the ones in the 70s that kind of knew they were ridiculous and just went whole hog with it. Flash Gordon and the <laughs> buckaroo bonsai. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you Morning never waits for you shall wait for you You're listening the to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. What does that mean? Well, that means that all that lovely music that we curate for the radio that fits the theme perfectly and is eclectic and interesting and wonderful to listen to has to be edited out. And if you don't care, then keep listening. But if you do care, check us out on Mixcloud. The full unedited show can be found there. Don't know how to find that? Just go to lastrefugepod.com. Lastrefugepod.com. All the information you need can be found, accessed. Okay. Music. We should talk about music because this show plays music. <laughs> Surely we've heard some music by now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obvious ones are Barbarella and, and Flash Gordon. Yeah, definitely. Some of the Flash Gordon soundtrack by Queen, some of the Barbarella soundtrack by the Bob Crew Generation. <laughs> Bob Crew Generation. <laughs> I know I'm going to play the song Team Planet by Patrick Cowley, but other than that, I haven't given it that much thought. <laughs> Who knows? You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Both Sontag and like the later people following and critiquing Sontag often set up this um, distinction between like pure camp, which is naive and unintentional, and then uh, like intentional camp, which can still be good, but is kind of degraded in some way. The things we watched, and I think Flash Gordon especially, seem intentional, but still pure. Like yeah. Flash Gordon the movie yeah. seems like where the distinction between naive camp and intentional camp just dissolves away entirely. <laughs> um. Well, I think casting Chaim Topol, who is that character in every movie that he does, is like an example that it is, it's intentional, not intentional, like the, his sincerity is real. You know, it's like the the, the Yiddish stage has this like in, insane sort of over-the-top sincerity that has... Yeah, he is, The I feel like his is the most committed performance in that movie. I mean, That's you know, Max von Sydow as the emperor does 
the fine job of being a ridiculous over-the-top villain, but Chaim Topol as the kind of mad scientist who's the only one who really knows what's going on, he can just... He acts the hell out of that. He really gets... You can see it in his eyes, the insanity, and it's great. <laughs> There's some bellowers in that one, for sure. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, oh, Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed <laughs> being the other one. Oh, is the Falcon Man? <laughs> that comes to mind. Or Hawkman? Hawkman. Hawkman. Hawkman, yeah. <laughs> Fly, my Hawkman! <laughs> um, <laughs> also the voice of Boss Nass in um, The Phantom Menace. Whoa! Or, I, I guess totally the prequel trilogy. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, like, the in referencing the Jewish... Uh, like the Yiddish theater tradition, or even like the Catskill tradition. Um, that essay that we read by Anne Pellegrini spends a long time talking about Jewish camp and how Sontag inadvertently de Jews camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, our guest last week, Kyle, like before we read any of these, brought up Maggie Moore from Power Rangers and immediately identified Ivan Ooze as like a drag performance. And Brendan, when we watched Mighty Morphin Power Rangers together, identified him as, like, a borscht belt comedian. Um, (laughs) So I think it's interesting that, like, uh, (laughs) the fact that, like, it appears as both, like, borscht belt and drag, the same performance, definitely is a very weird example in the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers of... (laughs) <laughs> a like the existence of kind of a Jewish camp. She does make a good point in that there are these two communities, like Jewish Americans and homosexuals, um, <laughs> homosexual Americans, uh, which <laughs> sometimes overlap too. Like yeah. either communities could be said to have you know similar access or adjacency to camp. And Sontag does an, and sort of makes an interesting point about I guess sort of like showiness and like the ability to like contribute to or continue to form a cultural narrative. So I'm. I'm thinking of uh, pushy women and uh, <laughs> loving loving and hating your mothers and, and you know both things that gays and, and Jews love to do. Uh... Pellegrini is, is commenting that Sontag's essay explicitly removes Jews from the idea of camp by kind of putting them in this category of, I don't know, the culture that they create is like a moral seriousness sort of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think... Sontag really, Sontag does set up this kind of contrast of sort of two different ways of trying to integrate into a society that often rejects it, like with Jews, what she calls Jewish moral seriousness, mm-hmm. where Jews are like sort of liberals par excellence, kind of appeal to the moral sense, whereas homosexual camp is a, a, an aesthetic way of trying to integrate by both like, it's you know, just a way of going, yeah, look, we're not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting that Pellegrini talks about camp as a means for, and this is, you know, writing 40 years after Sontag, but talking about camp as a means to assimilation. Whereas I, I, I think of it and continue to think about it as a, an oppositional mode relative to mainstream straight wasp society, even though yeah. it started to become taken over, as Bruce the Bruce later points out, as like, you know, a dominant mode. But maybe for me, that's that's one thing that demarcates true camp from just, you know, banal irony as like the baseline is that there is an opposition to straightness it's anti-assimilation or it's always Mm -hmm. in a joke but in a loving way one thing that i found very interesting about that pellegrini essay is it's a chapter in a book published in 2007 and it's 
opening framing, which she she says the entire discussion is a way to talk about this, but then she never comes back to it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, she opens it with this framing of how George Bush lies a lot, but people don't mind because he, like, performs this sincerity and, like, certainty. And then she like, doesn't come back to this at the end of the essay and says, and this is... And, talked about camp to make this point about that i found it interesting because that whole like doesn't matter if you're lying as long as it seems like you mean it became like a much bigger phenomenon with our current sitting president who is the most camp president in u.s history probably world history by far donald trump is such a camp figure that's why it was funny to read uh, bruce LeBruce's list expanded notions and sort of subcategorizations of, of yeah. camp and to see like the Gingriches on there, or Sarah Palin as ideas of concern, or avatars that could be read uh, through the lens of camp as as, as bad straight camp. Yeah, yeah, bad straight camp or conservative camp. And, Do yeah, I didn't understand Che Guevara's uh, inclusion in that? Maybe somebody. Maybe else just because he's on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think it's Che Guevara himself. I think it's just that yeah. icon. Yeah, yeah, it's become nothing, almost nothing but surface. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, I was I, like, wait, I don't, is he, what? <laughs> <laughs> that one's kind of, a, yeah. Yeah, I, I had a hard time, or like wasn't particularly convinced by a lot of those characterization, categorizations. I can see Sarah Palin as camp, not so much Newt Gingrich. <laughs> yeah. Um, Have you seen, like, his, like, wife's, is it like Instagram or Twitter? She's always just posting Oh, Calista, Flo- of, yeah, yeah, Calista Gingrich is yeah, Calista very Gingrich. camp. Were you about to say um, Calista Flockhart? <laughs> like she has a she has a middle name. Like, yeah. I was now worried the dancing... and I didn't want to say Calista because I was like, no, I don't mean Calista Flockhart. Now the dancing <laughs> CG baby is that camp? <laughs> is it sci-fi? Is it art? <laughs> I did enjoy. No, um, I think that's knowing camp. Kirk. I enjoy. I enjoyed Kirk Cameron as as an example of conservative camp. Yeah, I thought um, categorizing Tyler Perry and Eddie Murphy as a reactionary camp was. Interesting. Wait, Controversial, maybe. Eddie Murphy under Tyler Perry? I, I uh, thought it was Adam Sandler movies. Tyler Perry, Eddie Murphy, and Heavy Metal were oh, those examples yeah. of reactionary camp. <laughs> Just reactionary in general, I assume. Okay. Um, now, I assume Heavy Metal means the music genre there, and not, <laughs> not that... cartoon. Not yeah. the 80s, or 70s and 80s, like, uh, you know, graphic novel anthology or periodical... Mm. Which definitely had a lot of crazy sci-fi camp erotica stuff in it, too. But it was in italics, so I think, unfortunately, I think he did mean the, the movie or the, the serialized, like, the graphic novel. No, it's it's not in italics. So it's, it's not? Oh, heavy general. metal itself? Yeah. Oh, so, like, Guar is, like, a reactionary camp or something? <laughs> is Guar uh, oh, reactionary or, like, <laughs> naive camp? Like, really sincere, <laughs> like... <laughs> well, one important thing to mention about, and I think to Sontag's credit, about notes on camp. That is A, outright she says, well, in the form of her writing, they are notes. She, she doesn't necessarily systematize it. She's sort of pointing out these are loose things towards an idea of what this thing is. And I acknowledge that in writing about it in any kind of remotely academic way, I threaten to destabilize or completely crush the thing that I'm actually trying to observe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she says, like, wow. making a full, like, a whole treatise on it, on the subject of camp, risks being itself failed camp. Right. And then Bruce LaBruce says that it is bad camp, um, <laughs> which uh, is another one where I just, like, I guess he's the expert, but I... <laughs> feel like he casts the net so wide that it does destabilize the whole concept of camp in a way that the original notes on camp doesn't. Aww.
Bruce LaBruce, what a beautiful campy name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's intentional camp. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I do like, he does have a quote that I think is a really good way to define camp, like for the future, where he says, I've expressed a rather depressing and unhopeful analysis of camp, or perhaps what might be termed anti-camp. I can only offer by way of an anecdote an express wish to radicalize camp once again, to harness its aesthetic and political potentialities in order to make it once more a tool of subversion and revolution. Camp itself should almost be defined as a kind of madness, a rip in the fabric of reality that we need to reclaim in order to defeat the truly inauthentic, cynical, and deeply reactionary camp or anti-camp tendencies of the New World Order. Camp as a rip in the fabric of reality. Which is what I felt when I was watching the movies that we watched (laughs) this week. I just wanted to pause it and looking over some of the the films we were going to talk about and thinking about some of my favorite movies. But, you know, I think we should add in the expanded canon of what is camp, uh, Dino De Laurenti gets an honorary good straight camp <laughs> tip of the hat for me <laughs> i mean just anything it seems like anything you put his figure on and later as we'll talk about uh, sky captain in the world of tomorrow was produced by Laurentis. is it I his mean, son or I think who was that nephew nephew yeah, cousin, yeah cousin nephew italian cousin yeah nephew. i do also there's like an aesthetic quality to particular cultures like italian in particular where there's a serious there's a there's a seriousness in like the gaudy and the extreme that I think that like lends itself to being like true camp, you know, like, I mean, that's just what they are. Yeah. And it's interesting because De Laurentiis isn't just like a B movie guy. He also produced serious films by Fellini and Rossellini, but then he was involved in the making of Barbarella and <laughs> Flash Gordon. So yeah. And another speaking of De Laurentiis, he also did, he produced both Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarian movies and Bruce LaBruce uh, categorizes Arnold Schwarzenegger as bad straight camp. And I, <laughs> having watched a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger films this year, I have to disagree. I'm going to say good straight camp. Yeah, especially the last action hero, right? I mean... But even as... Because he was writing in 2011, Bruce Mm. Lewis. So even then there was... I mean, there there was a still lingering taste of like, God, how bad was uh, you know, how bad was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all this stuff? Where it was as though his entire filmic image had been reversed by um. how, wielding temporal power. <laughs> you know, not just the riddle of steel; it's the, the riddle of property tax. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Sontag talks in her essay about like what is camp can change over time. She says, things are campy not when they become old, but when we we become less involved in them and can enjoy instead of be frustrated by the failure of the attempt. Oh, another thing that Bruce LeBruce puts under bad street camp is Star Wars. I do think that Star Wars is, to whatever extent it is camp now, I think it has a very high potential to be more and more camp as time goes on. Rise of Skywalker, I think, you know, in 20, 30 years could be seen as a camp masterpiece. It is very over the top. And, you know, once everybody forgets that anyone ever had any expectations that any of the later Star Wars movies would be good. People may enjoy them just as pure camp. Then you'll they'll finally just be able to enjoy a horse on a spaceship. For what <laughs> it is. And it won't be so... A literal horse opera. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's interesting to think about those Star Wars, aren't they? Isn't it? <laughs> I had a point I was going to make about... Um, 
about Star Wars. Oh, I, I was thinking about the axes. I mean, the, the, the often self-contradictory criteria that Sontag lays out for camp. So when you think about the prequel trilogy, for example, or even like the post 70s Star Wars sequels as like monumental failure in terms of like taste, like good taste <laughs> and it, it sort of being failed seriousness, but especially the prequels, I think. But also there is a, a sense of like love for the subject matter that the, the camp sensibility is supposed to have. Mm. Like there is, there is this sort of like zest for life, even though you could be kind of mean or whatever. And I see 100% artifice, which Sontag talks about as being central to camp or a camp sensibility and a love of artifice and, and a rejection of the natural. But I also don't see any kind of love for any kind of subject matter. Like I would say the prequel trilogy actually actively hates the original subject. Matter. <laughs> um, my other pet theory, which I've talked about to a select few initiates is the trilogy as being George Lucas's attempt, attempt to synthesize his Methodism of his childhood and Buddhism, which is why he identifies as a Buddhist Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> Failed seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a sentence in the Sontag Notes on Camp where she says, what is extravagant in an inconsistent or unpassionate way is not camp. I think, yeah, one reason maybe the prequels could be camp eventually is there is kind of like, George Lucas really thought he was doing something there. Um, there is a kind of weird Methodist passion at work. I can't see something like most of the Marvel movies ever being camp just because they can be over the top and there's plenty of artifice there, but they're just so soulless. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why a lot of like modern big budget CGI movies will never really be camp. Um, Is anyone watching The Mandalorian? Yeah. I don't think that's camp because it, it does lack a little bit of, it's just, I mean, it's cute. Baby Yoda is adorable, and that's the only reason I yeah. watch it. Sure, but, yeah. But it I, doesn't really have like a, it's just like a, for the fans, basically. What's that word? I mean, the fan service. Fan service. <laughs> yeah, it's fan service. Yeah. I mean, there's something sort of campy. I mean, it's a Western. They're making a Western in the yes, Star Wars universe. And there's something kind but of campy even... about that idea, but it's maybe just too knowing or like... It's way too uh, knowing. There's no subtlety about it. There's a, a, one of the most recent episodes, the sheriff is played by... Timothy the... Oliphant. Timothy, Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's like... Yeah, that's all he plays are, is sheriffs. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, so you, you're making a Western. I get it. One of like the shining moments for me for that show, like as of the, the, the eating the eggs episode, I just couldn't oh. bring myself to watch this week's episode. But I will say one of the shining <laughs> moments for me is uh, Amy Sedaris as the recurring like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Badlands character. Um, it's just such a breath of fresh air in that show. And there was that meme. <laughs> yeah, she's around. like the only character in that show with a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just levity that's just so far and beyond everything else. So when you watch like At Home with Amy Sedaris or Strangers with Candy, you just uh, it's just that. Now that's camp. So there's that meme yeah, Strangers the, with the Candy Twitter is thing a of, family like, favorite. Yeah. yeah, that's also it, cited somewhere. What was it that Strangers with Candy is a camp oh, really? show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was I was seeing that the, <laughs> the the meme going around where it's like name something that feels like something but isn't. And it was, uh, it was like the name something that feels gay but isn't. And I 
posted about like the cast of Strangers with Candy. Like they're all, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're all straight. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. people are all straight, but they bring that that energy to it. And <laughs> she, she's an avatar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and related to the Mandalorian, I think uh, what keeps a lots of pop culture of the last decade from being camp or really having a potential to later be camp is like the obsession with like a gritty realism yeah like which the mandalorian it's supposed to be like everything's dirty and run down and like you're really in the star wars universe whatever like that even when things look very artificial like there's no love of artifice because you're trying to be doing a gritty reboot of something or other one of sontag's last points was about intensity of character the idea of these these intense characters you know, sort of from a traditional, you know, 60s conception of camp being like sort of gay men's love of the classic intense statuesque powerhouse women, you know, actresses of like the 40s, mm-hmm. 30s and 40s. So you're like your Joan Crawford's and your Betty Davis's and Mae West's and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, in thinking of intensity of character in the Star Wars universe in the last 30 years, I'm like, what characters? <laughs> There's well, that that gag in the red letter media video where they're like, describe Qui Gon Jinn, and it's just like completely <laughs> flat. You can't think of anything. He's, he's got a haircut. I, I think <laughs> Luke Skywalker is is the only character that you could describe as like an intense. Everything he says and does is he's on the verge of tears. And I was I was going to say that that intensity of character bit in Sontag's notes on camp is another thing that sort of makes a lot of traditional sci fi that you wouldn't necessarily think of as camp kind of campy and that sci-fi protagonists are often very just like they're one thing and a lot of that one thing <laughs> i think i think you could make an argument for like han solo or lando calrissian as being kind of straight camp and <laughs> when i think of the potential the potential of the sequel trilogy as becoming more camp over time i think kylo ren is a big part of that because oh, it's yeah. a real that is like mm-hmm. i mean it's like teenage emo straight camp but. Everyone loves Luke. Like, we all related to being a whiny teenager and, you know, a sensitive, vulnerable teenager who wants to do something. So, like, he felt like a great protagonist for that. But I wanted to bring up the, uh, you know, we watched Flash Gordon and then last month I watched Buckaroo Banzai across the dimension, which are very similar movies. Buckaroo Banzai came out four years after flash and <laughs> i feel like they're from entirely different universes <laughs> they do <laughs> like absolutely <laughs> i feel like the main characters like flash gordon and buckaroo Banzai, are just the most boring flat performances and yeah. the in- everything in the environment around them is insane <laughs> and, over- and over the top except for those main guys are just football players <laughs> who are you flash gordon a quarterback, what? New York Jets. Who, who yeah. spends most of the movie wearing <laughs> a shirt. t-shirt that says Flash on it. So I think oh, that I was a fun, kind of a funny contrast because, yeah, all the other performances in both those movies, except for the main characters, are bananas. <laughs> I think there's something to that. It seems like Camp's sensibility and its relationship to like traditional heteromasculinity is one of like distance and kind of mockery. But you can make the, the, the beefy, straight every man guy who's like simultaneously yeah. like the quarterback and also a bus like a, a like a bodybuilder yeah the or, or also a particle yeah. physicist he is i mean Ooh, i'm thinking too, of yeah. like I'm, I'm thinking of like inarguably camp characters or films and rocky is 
uh, is the naive straight character and John Waters. Mm-hmm. A lot of John Waters films, ev- there's always the one image of like traditional straight masculinity. You're Flash Gordon is just like the most vacant eyed himbo I've <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. ever seen on screen. <laughs> I just want to make sure you're talking about Rocky Horror, not Rocky Balboa, right? <laughs> Rocky Horror. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Yeah, and like uh, Brad and Janice just being like straight, square representation of. of heterosexuality. By the way, what's his face is in Flash Gordon? William Hootkins? What? <laughs> no, R- Richard Richard O'Brien. He he Does plays he plays one of the um arbor arbor he plays the um Oh, yeah. oh the tree people. One of the tree people's the henchman or not the henchman, the like buddy of the main tree person guy. Timothy Dalton. Oh, yeah, can we give oh, a yeah. shout out to Timothy Dalton <laughs> who yeah, Bruce the Bruce points out uh, Mae West singing "Level Keep Us Together" in Sextet, and she her singing partner in that sequence is none other than Timothy Dalton. Is he Phantom ageless? Menace. He like looks that <laughs> that that age all the time. So I wanted to bring up this one film, a short underground film that we watched. Did you watch it, Brendan? Sins of the Fleshapoids. I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> 1965 underground film directed by Mike Kuchar, Kutcher, famous underground director, him and his brother. And this film is explicitly cited as a, a major influence on John Waters. Much, what is it about? much like uh, Vegas in Space, it looks like it was filmed in an apartment. It yeah. really does. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Yeah, they didn't do quite as much with the apartment space limitation as Vegas in Space did. Not as much drag queen ingenuity. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's I, so crucial to me is like the yeah the camp sensibility that transcends the meager means that you may have at your disposal and whatever you know studio apartment that you're working at i did kind of like the uh, just writing the dialogue on the film with like a white grease pen or whatever the very end is really something remind me what happens at the very end? Um, so there's like forbidden robot on robot oh, love, which robot. is unnatural. <laughs> oh, and so the female robot goes through a bunch of convulsions and then yeah. <laughs> gives birth to this little toy that like he's robot. Up to- oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's just like goofy harmonica music playing. In the yeah. That was really uh, good. Otherwise, pretty forgettable. <laughs> I thought. That is, but a- the plot is secondary. Yeah, the plot <laughs> is. I mean, yeah. that, that's what's interesting. You would think that science fiction would be such a fertile genre for intentional camp because you can kind of make it whatever you want. You can be completely divorced from reality, although there is that tension between fantasticness and fabulousness and uh, the suspension of disbelief and something being split relative to, uh, you know, the modern reader's understanding. So when you have a film that's set a million years in the future, these space queens, um, uh, <laughs> I, I just love that about some of the films that we watched is just like, eh, number doesn't matter, you know, in the same way that like in Scientology, the scales of time are just so much more massive. Another, <laughs> a trillion another piece years. of evidence. Yeah, exactly. This happened like, you know, da, 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 quadrillion, trillion, trillion, trillion years ago. In Sontag's essay, she has this aside about how what's most striking or beautiful about like a very beautiful woman is something masculine and what's most beautiful and like a very masculine man is something feminine. And the very first thing I thought about was John Travolta, 
who is like this square jawed guy who is so pretty he looks like an alien like it's kind of unnerving um like how pretty he is and like uh, he's got big big bug eyes yeah yeah he's so beautiful like it's just he's weird looking um and he's also the main villain in battlefield earth which there's a strong argument is bad street camp um but there's also a strong argument for all of scientology being straight camp it's a very over-the-top science fiction religion come at us come at us scientologists for the listener ted was doing the finger quotes i mean look the irs says yeah the irs says you're a religion you may have had to, uh, you know, infiltrate and blackmail them to get it, but it's done. It's done. You heard, you heard it here first. No, <laughs> nobody's ever called out Scientology. I was going to say allegedly, allegedly, but this is all proven, so you know, we're safe. Yeah. You know, I think Uncle John Waters would have our back too. I mean, I don't know if that was his casting choice, but John Travolta as like as the mom oh, in, uh, in the hairspray yeah. in the hairspray musical adaptation is like another inspired choice. But one could ask, one could question whether that's good straight camp, bad oh, straight that's camp, bad. or that's bad gay bad. camp, or good. <laughs> Gay camp. <laughs> well, that's um. What did you you did make a note because Bruce LeBruce calls out like complicit homosexuals. Oh yeah, bad camp. Yeah. Well, so not necessarily what, no. complicit homosexuality. Although I made that as a note, but like the idea that you're <laughs> sort of minstreling. You know, it's like gay minstrelsy or performing homosexuality mm-hmm. for the sake of a straight audience which seems to be his criteria for that like stanley tucci in uh the, the devil wars Prada oh. and the hunger the games. hunger games too bad it didn't get sci-fi at the end and they didn't take off in a spaceship that's our criterion <laughs> for, <laughs> for i was thinking <laughs> Again, when when the when you were talking about doing this show, and I was thinking, oh yeah, it's camp science fiction. Usually, it's you know you you identify it and bring that sensibility to something that you know is uh, like over the top, artificial, like failed seriousness, and so it works. But creators who are working from a like a camp sensibility tend not to work in that genre. And I was thinking specifically about John Waters, who never really made like an an out and out genre picture in that way i mean maybe because they're almost all set in baltimore but the only thing i would say is um baltimore uh, would never be in the future (laughs) exactly it's grounded in either you know the contemporary or the past but i mean the only one i would say that i've seen is desperate living where they go to mortville edith massey is like this evil queen which to me is such a a hallmark of of the camp sensibility is like the, the powerful evil woman who's beset by all of these like problems and incompetence and <laughs> but gets to be super arch. Yeah. I think those the Kuchar <laughs> brothers are, you know, they're they're both gay men and I think that they operate with under camp sensibilities and they do I think they just make a lot of like horror and sci-fi themed stuff. <laughs> I no, it's interesting. I saw Mike uh, Kuchar did give a talk here in town and I think he he lives up in San Francisco but gave a a talk down here in LA. So they did a screening and he has been working for, yeah, again, 60 years. And he described being a contactee, which I thought would be interesting for the sake of the show. Like he had a, a UFO sighting or experienced mm-hmm. on like a long drive. I think he's going to a film festival and went through a mountain pass and described this very intense UFO experience he had. So I think it has informed his work subsequent to that. <laughs> Barbarella! Ooh! <laughs>
transitional <laughs> thing I will say about, especially like the <laughs> the homosexual like influence on camp or camp's influence on the homosexuals, like in Sins of the Flesh of Boys and in Barbarella, like heterosexual sex is viewed as something that is unnatural and robotic. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and that's something yeah. that we learn in the universe of Barbarella is like everyone kind of forgot what true pleasure and joy is in sex but we but they need like chemical enhancement and pills and stuff and they're like what no uh yeah barbarella came out in 1968 so what three years after flood sins of the flesh and it's based on a french comic series by jean-claude forrest directed by roger vadim famously starring sex symbol jane fonda this is jane fonda pre before she got really involved in um leftist politics pre tuvabian Jane Fonda. Quickly, like, skimming through Barbarella again, I noticed, like, how there's this, like, sort of American propriety to her exper- to her performance. Like, almost like a Catherine Hepburn kind of little edge to it uh, that I'd never noticed before. Yeah, her performance yeah. itself seemed camp in a, a little camp in a way I'd never noticed before. Because everything around Jane Fonda... <laughs> I just read something. I don't remember who. Maybe it was the d- director was trying to say that she was... The performance that she was supposed to put on, which is exhibited, is this... She's supposed to be this very naive space traveler, which, okay, seems incredibly unqualified for the mission that she is being sent on. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Severely unqualified. (laughs) Yeah, she's a secret agent who, like, is so trusting, you're just like, what do you... Lady... Well, to even Those give her weapons, to, <laughs> to even give her weapons, they have to borrow them from the Museum of Conflict. Yeah, I was I was thinking about Jane Fonda and how something like I Love the Eight, oh I Love the Seventies, where they were talking about Carrie Fisher as well, both being sort of like children of prominent showbiz families, you know, actor families, and having that sort of finishing, that level of finishing, and sort of that affect of of prim and proper underneath what they're being asked to do. But Barbarella and Flash Gordon are both about sort of heterosexual knives being sent into space. I think I saw Barbarella in college. I think Ted probably screened it. Yeah, you knew me, point. so you probably saw Barbarella. Yeah, yeah we were, I think we were all at that screening. Yeah, but it's been, it's been so many years that I watched it again and with like my jaw open the entire time being like, what is this movie? Yeah, the like camp as artifice and stylization just comes through so strongly, like every single frame filled to the brim with visual like extravagance. It's incredible. I don't um, think there's a seagull yeah. like leaf or real plant or anything or real piece of food. Nothing edible in the <laughs> yeah. entire film. It's great. It's beautiful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's got, like, seven costume changes, which is, I think, wonderful. She has sex with four men? Uh, (laughs) Three men? Are you counting the machine? Yeah, I feel like she only has real sex with one man, but... No, two, two. Because she she ends up in the nest of, um... The blind. Uh, oh, Pygar does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They bone. Yeah, it's why Pygar can fly again. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I couldn't remember. Well, I couldn't remember if it was just kind of really implied. No, they... or, yeah, but no, you're right. And then she has a uh, dildano. <laughs> yeah, well, they but they have the uh, like the just pharmaceutical psychic sex. Yeah, because um, yeah. he's he's heard that's how it's done on Earth, and he's so excited. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's just so funny because at a certain point in Notes on Camps, Susan Sontag is like talking about the method actors of, you know, circa 1964 when the piece came out. So she's like, well, one will wonder if in time Marlon Brando, Warren Beatty, and um, Rod Steiger will be considered camp actors. But the year, I mean, she missed it by a year because the loved one came out in 1965 and Rod Steiger just completely chews the scenery. And to me, I mean, that's one of the great moments <laughs> in comedies. And, and, you know, Liberace's in it as a mortician and just like, that's an incredible work of, of camp sensibility, I would say, while being, you know, a, a dark comedy. Oh, and then Warren Beatty, of course, like a method actor of the 60s, apparently, going on to make Dick Tracy, one of the great straight camp oh, man. films of the 90s. <laughs> Again, with like Cedri chewing Al Pacino, Madonna, <laughs> and, um, just <laughs> these outlandish sets. <laughs> the great circle of camp. Again, Barbarella has that evil queen, which is just, it seems like is... <laughs> since camp isn't a genre it's not a trope but we'll say it's a trope and I, I love when they get to the labyrinth and like doctor or whatever his name is explaining um sogo the city to them is like oh well it's the evil city like everyone there is evil <laughs> professor ping played by yes. marcel marceau dubbed over Just famous like... french mime marcel marceau <laughs> playing like a satyr of some sort in this one <laughs> like, he has satyr facial hair jean-ball gautier for his designs in the fifth element which is another movie we considered watching for this show yeah but he was inspired by the closing that jane fonda wore in this movie that they were a Paco Rabanne. and then duran 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 get their name from durand durand the evil <laughs> The main and, antagonist in this movie. And the electronic duo Matmos gets their name from the Matmos, which is the like liquid uh, underneath the city, the evil city that is the reason it's evil, because it like absorbs negative energy and gives them power <laughs> and life in return. It's just pure churning evil energy. <laughs> it's, it's all very it's scientific. <laughs> I think we had flirted, or I heard there was talk about maybe watching the stuff as a potential movie. Oh, I guess it was like I do love that stuff. one. It's kind of a horror it's, movie. So a meteor crashes in some guy's backyard, and he goes to the crater, and he sees this bubbling pile of goo, and he then dips his finger in it and tastes it. It's like, oh, that's pretty good. So he starts selling this goo. And it calls it the stuff, and it takes over people's minds and turns them inside out. Yeah, we might have discussed that as, like, one of the the. Oh, the the's. Oh, yeah. It was one of the the's. <laughs> Which inspired the, the band the the. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, the blob or the yeah. invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, we did a whole episode of the the's. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah, I, we, yeah. Just didn't, we just didn't do the stuff. No. We just didn't invite you. <laughs> no, and I've been bad about listening, so I, I lost my title. Like, number one fan. <sighs> Short time listener. <laughs> we should talk about Flash Gordon. That came out in 1980, directed by Mike Hodges, also based off of a comic strip, which apparently was a very serious comic strip, but the producer, Dino De Laurentiis, was like, I want this to be funny. A lot of people were very angry by that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, it, that it betrayed the source material? The Flash Gordon comics are one of the examples Sondag gives of camp in Notes on Camp of 18 years or 16 years before the movie and well after the comic came out. So 
Some people thought of it as campy even before that movie. This was being added to my list of favorite movies of all time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. From the moment that... Had you not seen it before this? I don't know how I hadn't seen it before this. I mean, I was a huge... Queen was like my favorite band as a kid, so I have listened to all the music composed for it, but have not seen it. And uh, the moment Chaim Topol enters on the screen, I was... My heart swooned. (laughs) (laughs) So Chaim Topol, for people that don't know, or singularly named Topol, of the pantheon of the great singularly named camp women, he was in Fiddler on the Roof. And Chaim Topol, my mom growing up in Israel, he was like a total sex symbol. Yeah, I think I already said he was my favorite performance in Flash Gordon as the mad scientist's Dr. Hans Zolker or whatever. God, yeah. talk uh, about putting uh, hyper-masculine actors into ridiculous situations. <laughs> <laughs> that one was great. Oh yeah, he gets tries to get brainwashed, but he resists it. He's like, all I had to do was think of the Talmud and the Beatles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really love the juxtaposition of this like clearly Jewish actor to these like super American archetypes. The the Dale. The woman and then Flash Gordon. Oh, I forgot about the hot... Isn't there hot magma in this one? There's like a flashing light about hot magma. Uh, Hot hail. So like hot... There we go. Yeah. Big (laughs) molten rocks are raining down on the earth. Yeah, the movie starts with Ming the Merciless, like, using weather control weapons on the Earth for some reason, where he makes just it. To, just for fun. He yeah. just likes harassing planets with it's natural terrifying. disasters. That's it's just to let you know what we're up against. <laughs> it's a particularly bitchy thing to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm going to press the tornado button now. It's caustic. <laughs> caustic hail. <laughs> Acerbic rain. <laughs> <laughs> Shady floods. <laughs> Everything is so over the top every single second of Flash Gordon. And it feels intentional, but not never annoying in the way that like so many like intentionally over the top things are. Mm-hmm. As I already said, it's just like, there's something so pure about it. Um, there's, even if just, it's knowing. Dino De Laurentiis may have been a terrible person, but for whatever reason, I have <laughs> the idea in my mind's eye, the image in my mind's eye of him just beaming and like tearing out pages of screenplays and being like, yes, but this is what audiences want to see. <laughs> it, there, there is, a, it's like a seeming purity or borderline naivete or just like still somehow, even though it may be calculated, some sort of like wonderment <laughs> mm-hmm. It remains pure despite all of these like very weird adult situations and how lurid it can be and just obviously sensational. Yeah, I think wonderment is a good word. There's just seeing what's on the screen, you like almost can't believe that you're seeing and you're like, yes, this is what cinema was made for. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the the clouds in Flash Gordon are amazing. Like the swirling clouds, the imperial yeah. vortex. Oh, yeah. They're straining their green screen technology when the when the big Hawkman flock of Hawkmen was coming through, but still, <laughs> but there are still in, like incredibly cheap looking details, like the hover like scooter that Flash Gordon is riding on. <laughs> oh yeah, it looks clear like an exercise machine. Yeah, yeah. made out of cardboard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything that Brian Blessed does is, in the movie is so good. He like trips a guy okay, so- and he like makes a shy face. He's the perfect example of what I was talking to Ted about before, which is the the notion of exuberance, 
which I think is something that mm-hmm. none of the writers on camp seem to talk about, but something that I is the thing that I put my finger on when I think about camp and what I look for when I want to watch enjoyable movies in general, regardless of if they're intentionally good or intentionally, you know, considered good movies or like bad movies that are considered good, bad movies. But there's a, an intensity of performance of like exuberance, whether it's in terms of like the mise-en-scene, what's on mm-hmm. camera, like the production design, or in terms of what actors bring to characters, their portrayal of these imaginary people that uh, I so value. And that's a hallmark of any Dino De Laurentiis. I'm trying to think of a, a word you can say in Safe Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Bonkers Joint. production. <laughs> Joint, yeah. <laughs> Another bonkers join from Dino de Laurentiis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, he was behind Dune also, right? Yes, or oh, yeah, he, at least his production company. Um, well, because I know that when, when David Lynch made Lost Highway and he made that character Dick Laurentiis, like the mob boss, he, that was him trying to say how sick he was of dealing with you know, <laughs> De Laurentiis on making Dune. Straight yeah, that was a make one. my movies enjoyable. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The guy's a tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how the Dune movie fits in with strained artifice. Like something happened there. I mm. guess the I guess the lead producer for Dune ended up being uh, Dino De Laurentiis's daughter. It was a ah. Dino De Laurentiis Corporation production. In that same vein, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow is related. What is it? Aurelia De Laurentiis? Or... Yeah, so I didn't see that one. Was that good, bad, or bad, bad? No, it's very beautiful. Or is it good, it's... good? So it's a much more recent film than a lot of these. Uh, 2004. And so it's in the CGI era. Like, yeah. very obviously all on a like shot on a green screen sort of thing. It's kind of one of the just the fakest movies, <laughs> fakest looking a, ever made. But but it's supposed to be that nobody's. It's supposed to be super stylized and fake looking. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to look like a pulp comic. But I think it's still unintentional camp. I like. I think it's pure camp. Like the person who made it was very much just like a devotee of like 30s and 40s comics and pulp adventure fiction so he's like yeah i want to i want it to look and feel like this old stuff and it kind of does and kind of fails and looks like a movie that is very much from 2004 it's a little bit boring i think it's a boring movie but it definitely is camp when you when i started watching it i was like how is this even remotely camp but the the acting is so naive and like heartfelt yeah i think it's a, it's a largely forgotten or yeah largely forgotten film that should be recognized more as like a minor at least a minor camp classic or <laughs> certainly <laughs> one of the major camp films of that era which otherwise is maybe lacking them other than the star wars prequels depending <laughs> on how that turns out there's no gritty realism which is what oh. actually really nice about it <laughs> it's complete artifice I yeah. mean, it's funny that he was inspired by like the 30s and stuff as it's like well at least they had tangible reality to film with <laughs> and this is, i mean among the most digital things I've ever seen that still has human actors in it. <laughs> I just really like Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow in this. Speaking as a gay man. <laughs> <laughs> Important disclaimer. Well, yeah, I was in the process of watching this uh, that I was like, wait, how is this not these like towering figures, these characters, like just so over the top and yet trying to do it with seriousness. I mean, maybe when they were making it, they were like, yeah, this is like a fun 
romp and adventure in the mold of like the dynamic like classic hollywood movies but it's just they're stripped of context so it just makes it so unnatural which is yeah. great angelina jolie is wearing an eye patch doing a british accent and spends the entire movie on like a flying aircraft carrier it has a dick tracy vibe <laughs> to it you know that like clearly evoking a, an era gone past very committedly it may be a little like ev evolutionary psychological of me but there's something about dick tracy and it's like color scheme and palette that it's like that's something i want to look at like oh you know greenery and interesting colors that give me information about what's happening mm-hmm. whereas sky captain is so drained of any color <laughs> as maybe that's why i un- was monotonous. bored yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I was bored, I think. Cause it, it's there, a boring palette? Well, there isn't even like, you know, there's there isn't even like a Schindler's List moment where where there's like one red thing or one thing <laughs> to contrast it. It's like all faded. Maybe partially that's an attempt to do like, it's an attempt at a retro effect. But also that time in cinema is just full of awful color schemes. <laughs> I thought you meant the 30s. You're talking about the 2000s. Yeah, I'm talking about the 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, yeah, oh, the beautiful technicolor cinematography of Jack Cardiff. Like, yeah, oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Another pretty camp aspect of it is having the villain played by archival footage of Laurence Olivier. And I think, like, this was a directorial debut. Like, he'd only gotten to make it after sort of making a pilot or, like, concept version of it in his house with a blue screen and an old computer. So it kind of does have that, you know, making Vegas in space just in your apartment yeah. aspect to it, just Absolutely. for the early CGI era. Yeah, it's just the, the, the technical tools and the palette. Well, not the visual palette, but the, pa- the figurative <laughs> palette of tools <laughs> has expanded. So yeah, you, you can still do it in your, you can do more with less in your living room. <laughs> One of the definitions of camp is that, like, if you're just, if you didn't aim that high, like, if you just had mediocre aims, then if you failed to get those, then it's not fun that you failed. It's not, we don't even, we don't get to say, well, good for you for trying. Like, you have to aim high and then miss it hugely, and then it's funny. And then also, good for you for aiming high. But if you just <laughs> aimed in the middle and then you also didn't even get there, it's like, well, you shouldn't even, shouldn't have even tried. You wasted my time by making me watch it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's why a lot of, like, gritty realism can never be... Another reason why a lot of that gritty realism can never be camp, because it's failed mediocrity, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And Sin City's not gritty realism, but it's definitely trying to be gritty and not not the good... Gull, do you want to bring gritty onto the screen again? Oh, yeah. No, but gritty gritty is not a failure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is Gall is stroking a stuffed gritty (laughs) currently. Anyway, I've very much enjoyed this week, and I look forward to watching Jupiter Ascending next week. I cannot wait for Channing Tatum in space. Yeah, I mean Channing Tatum is definitely a camp aspect of that film. Um, even though we're going to be talking about it as a space opera, he's a, he's a naive meathead in like everything that he's in, which makes him the perfect camp avatar. Yeah, <laughs> a head of naive meat, <laughs> an entire planet of meat, <laughs> <laughs> overflowing with meat. Now that's camp. <laughs> Turtleneck camp. <laughs> When you look up Meat Planet, the first thing that open that that pops up on Google is Meat Planet Inc. Meat Wholesaler <laughs> in Houston, Texas. <laughs> oh, I think my <laughs> is that uncle used camp? to work for them. 
<laughs> a company Stop called Meat Planet Inc. in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's pretty camp. straight camp. <laughs> that's straight camp. Good straight camp. Bad straight. <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet John Waters. Um, I went to the Provincetown Film Festival maybe two years ago, and he was there. He's been a long time resident. He was in conversation with John Cameron Mitchell. And I was sitting maybe in the third row, so I like eagerly got their attention during Q&A and managed to stammer out like a half question, half statement, because I was trying to sound smart and smart <laughs> of, like these two like gay cinematic uh, icons and didn't, but was trying to get either of their impression on the nature of camp and like, could you give us a definition and what do you make of this like Met Gala thing? Managed to get that out and I was so nervous. Yeah. They kind of took it in good humor, but they were like, what are you talking about? Oh, that's, that's old. And it's funny because John Waters like his kind of take on camp was like, well, that's something that's kind of specific to this particular time and that when they were talking about it, you know, in the 60s, it was gay men saying that's camp. And, you know, that's a laugh. It's a particular thing that's tied to a kind of a particular time. And it's been so done to death that to talk about it now is just like, just in bad, bad taste. Like, it doesn't <laughs> make sense. I love that quote that he has about like, there's, you know, camp is kind of the good taste of bad taste. But in order to know good, bad taste, you have to have very good taste, something like that. I love when he talks about Comme de Garçons, like the, because he loves fashion. He talks about fashion. Mm -hmm. And for him, like, like fashion has to have, like, you, you have to know what's good fashion to then, like, make it purposefully ugly and weird and ill-fitting. And that, and that, like, sticks with me. And I always reference that to people and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, girl. <laughs> 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 what's Comme de Garçons? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean. It's tragic. The tragically ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of interesting because, or that John Waters definition of it being the ludicrously tragic and the tragically ludicrous is interesting because Sontag defines it, says that camp and tragedy are antitheses. But, well, well you, I mean, what? failed tragedy is camp. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, tragedy would be the main thing that keeping, especially the Star Wars prequels, from being camp because they're definitely tragedies, but. Their tragedy is about Hayden Christensen, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> John Waters' thing about camp being, like, over and done to death is sort of what Bruce LeBruce is talking about, it being, like, so such a widespread um, sensibility now that it's become anti-camp. Kind of like irony became anti-irony in the 90s, because the ubiquity of irony in the 90s that's kind of epitomized by going dot 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 not... She's like, that's not irony. You're not like, like pure um, facetiousness. There's just nothing ironic about it. What are you saying so, about Wayne's World? What are you? What? <laughs> <laughs> Wayne's World is not irony, but it is straight camp. Um, <laughs> maybe I am um, not your wife. Yeah. <laughs> or what? So, yeah. I think the '90s irony, anti-irony thing. Definitely an interesting way. It's like a good example of like how something can become its opposite if it becomes too ubiquitous. Well, that so Met Gala thing. I remember when that first like when that happened, and everybody was like, there was like all these listicles of like <laughs> all the pictures of people, and like which one of these is actually camp? And I, it's <laughs> so <laughs> annoying. <laughs> Everybody. Well, yeah, it's like, how can the most elite fashion world yeah. trend-setting party in the world be yeah. considered oppositional or an in-joke? None of know, those when things. It's, when it's completely broadcast and documented and everyone has to have, like, a, a, a moment 
on the red I, carpet. There is. You guys know Billy Porter. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, oh, do you guys? Did you see that video that he put out for the Biden campaign? It's him and some. It's like him and I don't know some country star, and it's so sincere and so like. <laughs> so I'm I just thought of him because he was like. I mean, he has great fashion, but he's he's part of the elite now, and so like he was like listed at the Met Gala like as having true camp costume, and you're like, none of it is all. They're all elite people that are like <laughs> wearing million dollar gowns and like literally screaming into your face you're poor and you will never be like me like there's... <laughs> well anyway. that's one thing too because like i was thinking about billy porter today and it was like what was it about it that a lot of people were saying like it it felt kind of terrifying and dystopian but on the other hand you had people who were you know vocal and ardent like and enthusiastic biden harris supporters being like yes that was amazing like yes billy porter. Uh, yeah why was there such a disconnect in, in terms of taste right yeah and um, oh, it, it goes back to the idea that camp cannot be political, which I found really interesting from Sontag's mm. perspective. There's an apolitical element to it, which I disagree with and I think mm-hmm. is like, it's not necessarily true. It may not be overtly or explicitly political or politically correct in the way that it, you know, kind of recites orthodoxies or, or a sort of political catechism, but you can be political. I mean, anything can be political without being expressly expressly for or against something. I might agree with Sontag that like content of camp is sort of apolitical to the extent it's camp, but you can certainly deploy camp politically. In retrospect, it's easy to like conceptualize what anti-irony is when <laughs> irony becomes um, ubiquitous. And it's kind of harder to put your finger exactly on what culturally ubiquitous anti-camp would be. I think it's like, Pil- Billy Porter singing yeah. at the Democratic <laughs> Convention. Like, so you mentioned the thing of, like, <laughs> you mentioned John Waters' thing about, like, needing to have really good taste in fashion or whatever to then be able to, or, like, camp being good taste and bad taste. So maybe anti-camp is about, like, trying to do camp like without any like gradations and taste just like Mm. if if you're opening camp up to everybody um regardless of their level of taste then just camp is impossible which Mm. sounds elitist and maybe is but (laughs) but like the particular kind of good taste that's involved in camp does feel like a good taste that is it's a good taste like developed in opposition almost Um, Which can be, like, I'm poor, but I'm still, like, I care about enough to develop good taste, or I'm gay in a homophobic society in opposition to the culture, in a sense. Yeah, and as much as there's, like, an oppositional element to that development of camp, then culturally ubiquitous camp is going to be anti-camp by definition. To me, the, the Billy Porter performance was a reason why failed seriousness doesn't definitionally completely explain the camp sensibility because i would look at that and say you know a person you know looking right into the camera and performing (laughs) the song while being super you know queer visibly queer (laughs) and like being in this odd way trying to express some sort of political conviction or make a statement was like for some reason it just rings wrong you know it rings (laughs) false (laughs) you you can't look at it failed seriousness (laughs) but not camp i was thinking (laughs) about like how camp was used as a word and like there's the all the the mentions of the the historical the historical origin of camp as a word people talk about christopher isherwood to me it was kind of like uh his being kind of one of the first mentions of it in english 
so I was thinking about camp and like the tagline from Gladiator. So it's like the verb that became a noun, the noun that became an adjective. <laughs> but it, to think about how camp was situated and how it was used linguistically in the 60s, there's a great documentary called uh, P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. It just came out and it's a, a documentary about a, a trove of letters from New York City drag queens from the 60s, mm. that, uh, or I guess the 50s that was discovered um, in the storage locker and it's them just kind of this epistolary history back and forth about their kind of everyday lives and the things that happen but they use it in such a way where it's like it was such a camp girl you should have seen it and it was like oh so that's what camp is like, it's not this big overblown theoretical thing it's just like it's a gag it's a laugh and if you, yeah. you know you know it when you see it and if you don't know it and it has to be explained you kind of lose it yeah anyway. yeah that's why i was like i'm i'm reading these articles and i just I, it made me so angry. I mean, I get, fine, like, fine. It's okay that, that this discussion, this discourse exists. But at the same time, there's there's a there's a part of me that just wants to burn it all down. Like, can't we just all enjoy the artifice? And now you've become exactly what you hate. I know. Someone talking about I know. Campus. I hate it so much. One last time, if you just listen to this entire show... And thought to yourself, hang on a second, weren't they supposed to play music? Well now, you're listening to the podcast edit of this show. If you want to listen to the music, go to lastrefugepod.com. You can find a playlist of all the music that we play and links to the mix cloud and all that good stuff. And um, enjoy! LastRefugePod.com. That is our website. Send us an email at the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail, 805-253-3091. And thanks, Brendan, for being here. Any last words? Any last thoughts on camp and Don't space? Don't do this to me, Waylon. <laughs> are we, wait, are we, still, are we still asking our audience to... Uh, let us know if they know who voices the computer in Barbarella. Yeah, or... we haven't sure, talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well bring it up again since we've been talking about it. That would be a good one. Yeah. In set nourishment. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have been invited back and after yourselves. I was going to say, I hope your dreams are full of, are, are, are full of sweetness. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet dreams, Incompeteers. Science fiction.